Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Girl, it's me, it's me, and we're here again with another fabulous guest. We are, and you know, I we do speak, you know, with with guests like Linda Simpson, Joey Arias, and mm-hmm. Princess DeAndra Jane County, Jane County about the Pyramid Club, which is, of course, where I started um, performing, where I, I arrived in New York in drag in two thousand. Wait, two thousand? No, two thousand nineteen. <laughs> Yes, it was just yesterday, 1983, (laughs) and became a resident go-go dancer. Now, it was a real hotbed of talent, and that includes playwrights who were drag queens like Ethel Eichelberger, performance artists like John Kelly, um, uh, jazz singers like the trans artist Stephanie Crawford, who actually just performed in New York last year, and, you know, pop singers like John Sex. A lot of big acts. I mean, you could say that RuPaul cut his drag teeth there. Delight, the group that sang Groove is in the Heart. Um, you know, also DJ, Dimitri was DJing there and performing there um, with me. Uh, and, uh, you know, Anoni, formerly known as Anthony and the Johnsons, uh, is one of the people from the Pyramid whose music really took off. And soon, Anoni was playing the Sydney Opera House, uh, collaborating mm-hmm. with Björk, yeah. uh, winning a Mercury <laughs> Music Prize, nominated yeah. for an Academy Award for Best Original Song, uh, recording a dance hit, Blind, with Hercules' Love Affair, and also, uh, you know, creating theater, as he did at the Pyramid with uh, the Black Lips performance troupe. And, uh, honey, putting together art exhibits, sculpting, I mean, Anoni is a major talent. You have some links, and I have been really entranced by the orchestral stuff because that's something that's so different to me, and I've been really having a good time consuming it, and it's very... I had it playing in the background. Like it, 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 it's very entrancing. So I'm excited to talk to Noni about that journey and um, and just the current state of musical affairs. Yeah, I mean, Noni has a unique gift. I mean, her voice is spellbinding, and uh, there's nothing like it. Yeah, yeah. So this will be fun, shall we? Yes. Get your, get your, get your, get your. 
Yes, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast. Listen, Bunny has enlightened me into the world of Anoni, and I have to say, I'm obsessed. First of all, no one performs with full orchestras anymore. It's just not a thing that children just don't know. And I want to bring that back because it was your your music is seriously very mesmerizing. It's like it's like it's like it like draw. I, draw I, I i don't know there's just so many things it's just so electric it's 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 very it's very intrinsic is the word like it like it like it like entrances you i feel like dracula just put like a spell on me well that's what you get when you exercise your tissel tassel <laughs> oh, oh i don't have any i don't have any more feelings left in my tissel tassel so it's very hard to exercise it just have to work out your tissel tassel <laughs> <laughs> Monet was just talking about how she moved to LA after living in a tiny, tiny apartment. And of course, uh, I still live in one in New York City. And Anoni was uh, also in a, we call mine it an was, SRO. Mine was a third the size of your mansion, Bunny. So it was an well, SRO. If, if y'all don't know what SRO, I, I just found out what, what an SRO. What, what SR <laughs> so you have the room and you have to use a, the community bathroom? Well, you share facilities on on a floor with two other people who live on the floor it's a it's a classic arrange new york arrangement i'm sure they have it in other cities too but yeah it was it was more common i think coming out of probably got set up in the 50s they they started converting brownstones in in the village into like multi-dwelling you know where Sort of day I'll just be nervous that everyone would just see my trade. I'm like, I don't need y'all seeing who's coming up in my oh, house. Everyone saw head. everyone's trade. It wasn't really an issue. You know, there was oh. some, as the years went by, more and more of my friends moved into that building. And it was really, really a wonder. It was such a fun, fun situation. So, but, but so, so, Noni, so, you, so you're, you're born and raised in, in, um, in the British Isles, which I love the UK. The UK is like, honestly, one of my favorite places to be. I, I always said if I didn't live in New York, I want to live in, the, in, in in London. So is this where you started music? And, um, well, I'm talking specifically about you with the Metropole Orchestra, Live oh, okay. at Car. Yeah, that was like 10. That was a, yeah, that was a show I did. What year was that? It was like 2000. 2013. I guess it was a progression. Bunny, you came and saw that show that I did at Radio City. Yes. That was sort of the, the that was the end of it, really, the symphony shows. It was like uh-huh. a, it was like a period of about four years where I was doing concerts for symphonies. I just kind of well, fell into it accidentally because I was working with a smaller group that was of musicians just from New York. And then a lot of them were sort of crossover into the classical world and just sort of fleshed itself out. And soon we were making arrangements for orchestras and there were all sorts of opportunities to do that with the right kind of music. So I ended up doing quite a lot for a few years. I know that, you know, just from knowing you, it wasn't easy to... You know, when you're trying to break into the music business to get these quartets or, you know, string instruments or orchestras and then to see them, you know, see you play with a large orchestra, you know, at places like the Sydney Opera House. I mean, you, 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 you know, you may have lived in an SRO and, 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 you know, lost money on your gigs uh, because you had real instruments backing you up, um, you know. That was but usually was- just the case in America, but not usually overseas. Mm. You usually had to pay to play in America, but you know, you'd go go other places and you could actually make a living. Although we did do certain things in America that, that worked out well. What was your first performance? I was probably like six years old, seven years oh. old, doing a lip sync to like uh, Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush in the living room in Amsterdam, doing the, car- <laughs> the slow motion cartwheel. From the video, you know, she did that video in Dieftling, uh-huh. like the the, uh, the fantasy park in in Holland. And was there a costume or just a lip sync? <laughs> I don't know. I, it was probably a costume. I was very into costume as a child. And so, when did you make your way to New York? I made, I moved to New York in 1990. You know, so mm. right right on the 
cusp of the very old and the old. And it's when you broke into the ballroom scene, <laughs> and, 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 and you performed strictly at ballrooms at that time, right? I'm yes, sure. yes. In ballrooms? Yes. I performed strictly at the Pyramid. And um, we had a, which is where Bunny, Bunny had been resident a few years earlier, but she'd kind of flown the coop, as had most of the Lantiset and most of the popular girls. But, um, but Linda still had a night there until about, what, 93, 94, I think. Linda Simpson, yeah, my comrade. But we did, the, the but we did a Monday. We did a Monday night called Black Lips, which was kind of much more, kind of punk. It was like a punk drag night, really a theater sort of performance night. We do a, a play every week with some one of Bunny's friends, Floyd, and, and my Evan ex. Jack. My ex. Your ex. Monet, can you believe I have an ex who's still alive? I'm gagged. Ebony Jet and Kabuki and Marty, uh, Love Forever and. Johanna Constantine, and there's a whole gaggle of us. Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley. Tara Clunch. Clark Lander. Hattie Hathaway. She was our, our manager. We used to do plays every week for like three years. That must not have been easy, plays every week. We did a new one every week. I mean, I started out writing them all, but then I got kind of tired of it, and other people started pitching in because they could see the opportunity that was kind of unfolding because we turned into a kind of an ensemble. It was, it was an unusual group. It was a great mm. group. Everyone was like completely wasted, but it was a great group. And really, really, really um, unbelievable, actually. How long did that last? We did, we did it for three years, mm-hmm. you know? We were sort of like the, the scorned, like, uh, you know, adopted. You know, we were the sort of, the, how would you describe it? I mean, we were sort of like... Well... It was a little goth, right? I guess there goth, was blood and black. It was very gory. There was a lot yeah. of gore and a lot of mm. and a lot of like beautiful singing and like you know it was quite surreal, kind of David Lynchian sometimes. And was that the first place where you were really singing? But yes, probably the first time I really started. That was where I sort of really like every week I could do a new song. Mm-hmm. work it out a little bit, like work out relationships with the audience and stuff. But I'd started at Crowbar on 11th Street. You know, we started Black Lips at Crowbar. You came to see that. Mm-hmm. You did a, like a one-line review of it in Homo Extra or something. Bunny. <laughs> and like and was, it, was, it, was it a nice review? Was, it, was Bunny She sweet? wrote that scary Fiona Blue. What that, is was, that was the Noni's previous name. <laughs> Fiona Blue was my, my drag name at that Got point. It. With when there was a bald head, white, uh, clown white makeup, yeah, it was like a Doc classic. Martin boots, and a crinoline. It was a quite, kind of classic Dean Johnson kind of, but a bit more surrealist. Like, did you ever see the video for Say Hello Wave Goodbye by Soft Cell? No. There was like a singer named um, Cindy Ecstasy who used to be Mark Almond's muse, and he appeared in one of the videos with his head shaved in like a night and a night like a sort of evening gown, like a sort of a torch singer, but with no hair, woman. And, and, and that was sort of an image that stuck with me as a kid. And, and then I saw um, Dean Johnson had his head shaved in that movie, Mondo, New York. And that was sort of like, it was just sort of like a, a ripple effect. When mm-hmm. I finally showed up in New York, I did shave my head. And then, oh. so you so you are performing in New York, and is that how you like? Because again, you've had some really dope collaborations with one I find very stunning, because I find her very stunning, uh, with um, they call her Bjork, but her name is Bjork. Okay, let me ed- let me educate the children. Her name is Bjork, it's not Bjork. Um, really? <laughs> yes, I didn't know that. she has an umlaut over the O. Oh, okay. Umlaut. Yeah. Um, so and and she's and she. I mean, I've seen her at the Monster Bar in New York City. I've seen her at Pieces Bar in New York City. Like she she uh, she roams around. So was that was your collaboration birthed from Bjork seeing you around New York City, or how did that collaboration specifically happen? She reached out to me after this one record I did did quite okay well in Europe, and. Um, in 2005, I won this prize in England called the Mercury Prize. And that mm. was kind of a game changer for me. The uh, Mercury Prize. Yeah, it's it's a sort of a, it's kind of a, whatever. It's a, it's, it's a, very it prestigious, a, Monet. That's why we don't know what it is. It means a lot in England, but not <laughs> probably much anywhere else. And um, But um, I don't know how Bjork found out about me. I think she came to one of my shows or something, but we became friends. Oh, we actually, God. our friendship preceded the, 
collaborations because we did a bunch of different things over the years. She sang on my record, I sang on a couple of her records. We've done lots of bits and pieces over the years. Work. But she's true. She was. She's always been sort of very plugged in, you know, to what's happening in in most in many cities, you know. Yeah. And she was living here for a while too. Although that's sort of come to a close now. And she wants to fuck me. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I mean, could be right. I think the, the shorter she's list more... is who doesn't want to fuck me. I mean, they all want. Ten... Yeah, it's true. That is a shorter list. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> anyway, this is droll. You don't need to hear all this. We want to. So when, yeah, you, say, to. when you say 2016, it was all over, is that when you stopped performing, stopped recording? Well, I did take a... I stopped performing live, yeah. I, the last show I did was in 2016 or 2017, maybe. Mm. But you did that thing at the kitchen. In, yeah, but I 20... didn't perform at that. I was directing that. It was a, a oh, play. I started right. doing. I did a play again. Right. That was for right. Julia because when Julia died, I wanted to do a memorial for her. And tell so us we about I used who to have Julia a, is. Well, I used to have this performance group called the Johnsons. It was named after Marsha P. Johnson. You know, because I was quite taken with Marsha P. Johnson. Mm-hmm. Met her just before she died, but Hattie had told me about Marsha, and um, and I'd actually just met her the week before she passed away but she became kind of a big figure in my mind and um, when she died we did I did a I did a I did a, a kind of a memorial march down Christopher Street the day after she died in a wedding dress and pulled down to the piers and all the kids had like set up a, a lot of the street kids had set up like a, a kind of a makeshift grave sort of a, almost like the shape of a body that had been laid out because she'd been laid out on the pavement just there at the bottom of Christmas Street, Christopher Street. And um, so they put the shape of her body in bottles with flowers and everything. And I, um, we just did this kind of impromptu thing because we were just young. I didn't know what, the, I think later on the West Village, the Queens in the West Village did a proper memorial for her. But at that point it was just sort of like kind of chaos and uh, just kind of rumors. And we were just, we were, I was so fringe. I wasn't really embedded in any community's response to it. So I just responded to myself and with Johanna and Eve and and after that like she became kind of a kind of a patron saint for me in a way she like joined the pantheon of saints and and after we did Black Lips like I went straight in and we started doing a group called the Johnsons which was based on sort of the Angels of Light, Hibiscus and Jack Smith and some of the the perform the sort of avant transvestite performance underground performance of the last 30 years in New York that I really loved. And and um, and I was moving in a different direction than a lot of the people in Black Lips. So Johnson's was more kind of, was more kind of soulful and kind of weirdly hope-based. It was like dreaming of, it was like 1995, 96, and running up to the millennium. And it was such a dark kind of feeling. And so we thought maybe this is like more interesting to kind of swim against the tide of, kind of nihilism and, and dream about like dream something more surrealistically hopeful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was how the Johnson started. And that became, we did Johnson's place for like three or four years in Manhattan, mostly at mother club mother, which was like a place where Jackie six used to be. And then we did it at PS one twenty two, And, and then about 97, 98, I, I, um, I switched over. I just decided I'm just going to do, my music for a while because I don't have any f- future doing plays. No one cares about this theater. It's no one wants to see drug addicted transsexual stars like Paige and, and like me and Johanna and people. There's no, there was no audience for that at that moment. Like there really was zero audience. Maybe about twenty people in New York would have cared, mm. and, and and they would have sort of even understood what the frame of reference was for it. Because a lot of the queens that came into Manhattan on my generation. They weren't really that aware of what had happened in New York even in the 80s, let alone the 70s or the 60s in the underground queer scene because the AIDS had just sort of des- cut a lot of the communication lines, the cultural oral history communication lines. Like, Bunny, when you showed up at Pyramid, like, you know, you had like several generations of queens in the basement there telling you all sorts of stories, didn't you? Oh, sure. Ethel Eichelberger taught me how to put on false eyelashes and I was riveted by Larry Ray who had toured 
you know, Europe, the world yeah. with uh, the ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo, which still performs in places like, you know, Lincoln Center. I was never one that one, that, that didn't care about my elders. I, I would grill Larry Ray about, you know, what, what, I mean, you were in drag, like in these capitals of Europe performing in drag in the, you know, 70s. So I was always fascinated by the, by the people that came before me. But what you might, what was interesting was that that was like, there were like a couple of generations of queens in that basement at the pyramid when you guys showed up in the 80s. But by like the early 90s, that was kind of a different scene. There was like Hattie, and that was basically it. And then there were, there were a few queens from the late 80s and 80s that were around, but everything had kind of shifted. And there was a kind of a dark window for like, I would even say like 20 years from like 1992 to, to fairly recently. Now that these, other narratives of things that happened in the 60s and 70s and the early 80s, for instance, in New York, in the underground, like trans, queer art world are, are becoming more evident now. They're being added to like the written history of the, of like written here queer history. I mean, I know that's not stuff that you were like super riveted by people like Jack Smith. And well, tell us a little bit about Jack company. Smith. You know, Jack Smith was like, you know, they say he was like the, fa the father slash mother, unwilling mother of the whole sort of avant-garde drag trans not drag though it, he would have hated to be called a drag artist he was just a like a really punk hallucinogenic insane slow motion like really influential seminal artist who influenced everyone from queer all the way through to straight hmm. artwork coming out of new york and he he was sort of the ground zero for a whole scene from him sprung like the ridiculous theatrical company charles ludlam john vaccaro and you know ethel for instance was part of ridiculous theatrical company and charles and charles ludlam and then and then hibiscus saw those things jack smith and and the ridiculous and then went to san francisco and started the coquettes and the coquettes you know and then coquettes were too capitalist so hibiscus came back to new york and started the angels of light and and the angels of light were like free ecstatic theater like drag ecstatic theater like they give out food and everyone's twirling and it's like so much they were all just like post lsd like really hallucinogenic jesus-y drag theater you know it's hard to imagine it now in the in the climate now that there was this sort of really radical kind of performance taking place amongst queens you know not just shitting in a martini glass or whatever but you know <laughs> you know but like Really, that's really that, like that's that Williamsburg, Brooklyn drag girl. Yeah, well, like like a like a really like communities of people doing staging big shows, you know, and you can see that you get a taste of it when you watch like the Coquettes film, or or you watch, you know, John Waters came during that period and saw Jack Smith and the early mm -hmm. and also the Warhol films, and he went home to Baltimore and started like Dreamland Studios with Divine and everyone, that whole crew. So there were all these like ensemble crews, you know, that were were making like bigger works like not just cabaret style everyone do a number but even if they would fit a number into a bigger work there were sort of these bigger structures that people were devising and blackness was probably one of the last times that people that that a group of sort of like really squalid queens and punk women like a, a, like a, you know aspired to do something like that i don't know if there are kids doing that now or if there's if the opportunities are even the um the examples are evident to people, but when I got to New York, I was really hungry to learn about what had happened, so I really researched it. Like, I got, I interviewed Hattie, like, my, when I was 19. Hattie Hathaway, I, the, one of the leading lights of the pyramid, who ran the yeah, pyramid. Yeah, and, and I, like, minutes. I interviewed Hattie, and I, like, single space typed out the whole interview. It was, like, 25 pages of everything that he'd seen in New York since 1970. And he told me the whole story of Sylvia Marsh P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera and Star, the street transvestite action revolutionaries. And at that time, those, guys, those people were still alive. They were living, you know, Sylvia was out in what, Long Island or something and, and Marsh was still on the street on Christopher. So you could go out and meet them. And it was really a visceral, you know, the history was, they were still everywhere. You know, people were mm. everywhere. But then, but then there was a big falling between like, to, I would say 1990, but by, that's only because I arrived here. You, you were here for starting in the mid-80s. Everyone started perishing or whatever. I mean, well, do you, are you saying that the falling and the dark period were, were, was well, AIDS? There was like, because that you know, was in the 80s Yeah, too. I would say AIDS, drugs, but like, you know, but, but it, 
your attitude, like you guys were carrying on at the Wigstock and really keeping up the spirits, and Linda was also like very positive and like like like, like the hippie revival and this kind of like peace and love and like keeping it positive. And I was like this kind of punk, kind of like just like camping on the graves of the dead. That was my whole thing. Like I remember I went to Wigstock in 1992 and I wore that T-shirt that said "My cock is riddled with maggots" with a barbed wire bracelet or barbed wire halo, uh-huh. and I gave out like 200, like 500. Black Lips flyers, and like the next week, nobody came to Black Lips. And the, and the flyer on the Black Lips flyer was a drawing I did that said, was like a hermaphrodite with the words, I will murder you, coming out of her mouth. <laughs> you know, it was sort of like the anti red ribbon parade. You know, it was sort of like the heart of the AIDS thing. And it was just a very testy, sort of shitty kind of student driven, but, but also just very aggro coming from, from my experience in my life. You know. And then, so I have a question. So, like, when you go ahead, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to know, Bunny, what you thought of that. I mean, because you just thought, oh, there's some goth queens, like, there's some rabble rousing goths, whatever. I never identified as a goth, but well, I just mean in terms of you know, dark themes, black clothing, black lips, uh, and blood. Well, the black lips was sort of camp. We were like camping, you know, like. You know, like when there's like a pile of corpses, like what are you going to do? You're going to pitch a tent. Right. You're going to start camping. I mean, Bunny, you know that. You've told so many AIDS jokes to people on the deathbeds. I mean, that was camp. <laughs> that you would go into someone in, dying in hospital and tell them rotten AIDS jokes. Well, and that was camp. That wasn't just goth. That wasn't like a, wasn't just assuming the position of a dark pose. It was just reality. Right. It right. A- so it, it was reality. And like, I was really into reality. Right. <laughs> well, Which like segues you know, into environmentalism or whatever. You no, know, no, but no, I, I, I will say a lot that, of those queens in the clubs they couldn't take me. You know they couldn't take me. That's true. Um, you know, and you know, I I I uh with wig stock, even though people would put like a is a political stamp on it, you know, my goal was really to just represent all the stuff that was going on at the pyramid to a wider audience and to have a party where people came in drag and, you know, carried on with their friends to dance music in between sets. I mean, it, to me, it was a break from reality that I needed and I did not feel everyone needed it. Yeah. I didn't think that I could be the one, I mean, I was in my, early and mid twenties, I didn't think that I was going to be the one that was at act up helping any, in any way. So I just thought that that might be something that I, a fool um, who loved to Please. drink and carry on, you know, could add, you know, because we, mm. we need our activists yeah. and we need our jesters. And you, well, you also did a huge, I mean, I'll never forget you sending up the balloons each year. I mean, it's not like you weren't like talking about it. You were just talking about it in your way. And, and, you know, it was, and I was, I was hissing, you know, I was just a hissing kid. I was. We sent up balloons for for performers from Wigsuck who had passed on. And sadly there were many. I just remember Donna Giles, like sending up Donna Giles' balloons. Donna Giles and so many more died during that time. No, it, 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 it was a dark time. And I guess, you know. You, uh, you know, you. So I took a real right turn because I was raised more on like Christian death and surrealism than I was. Um, you know, I wasn't really a drag queen in the normal way. Right. I was just about to ask you: Did you ever identify as a drag queen even at the beginning? Well, I did until people started like. I mean, I was more like I was really into John Kelly. Like John Kelly was like really striking a, a very formal pose as a drag queen. It was like a formal, like a. It wasn't really a character, but it was like, I used to think of Sphere and Blue as sort of a symbol. Like, I didn't think she was real. She was sort of like a weird, she was like a channel for me. Not in a personality sense, but as a singer, you know, that I could assume this kind of really female-powered, feminine androgen-powered vessel. And I was young, so I was sort of put together. And I was, I was quite athletic as a singer. And my goal in those days was to go into the club Everyone was drunk on Special K and make them all cry in three minutes and just disrupt the narrative, you know, make them cry with something really weird, like singing I Will Survive, that people would think that would be a joke, but then I would sing it so hard because I was really interested in, I love Diamante Gallas, 
Mm. You know, Diamanda was doing like all of those very hard AIDS era stuff. Her brother had died and she was doing plague mass and really, really gripping, intense, primal scream of, of the act up, really. Diamanda mm. was sort of inhabiting that and holding space for that. And Diamanda was a huge inspiration to me and actually to a lot of us in the Black Lives Group. You know, because she was just blood curdling. Truly. And amazing. I mean, I'm an amazing athlete, like Olympic singer, you know. I love a good, honestly, you using the, the saying an athletic singer is such a, I love that because that those are singers that get me off. Like Jasmine Sullivan is an athletic singer to me. Right. Like singers that are, bitch. Because people forget, bitch, their vocal, their vocal cords, they're two muscles the size of about a dime. And just like your fucking biceps, just like your calves, just like your abs, you got to work them out, girl. And you got to they got to be able to uh, 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 to be athletic and fierce. And an athletic singer is such a great way to describe a singer. Those and Monet, you have a background in opera, so you know. Of I, do, you I do. I do. Really? Tell. So what do you mean? You. What's your background in opera? Uh, I went to school for opera performance and I sang for a few years with Portland Opera. Before track. With, with, with which opera? Portland Opera. And, and that was before you started doing drag? Yeah, in like 2012 and 13. And have you done um, any performances or singing in drag? No, not opera. Why? Um, I don't know. It's just, uh, I haven't had a voice lesson since I graduated. And after I stopped like working professionally, I just kind of let that part of my thing to kind of dissipate and move into a different direction you know it's like it doesn't capture your interest anymore not i mean i like to listen to it but it I, again I, I mean i went to school for so long in, in music and i i i know when i listen to singers who haven't had a voice lesson in a long time and i there are things that i hear and I, I don't want to be that for someone else i don't want someone to listen to me and be like oh girl she needs to like i just there's just so much in it that i have not uh practiced in so long i would feel very insecure singing it it's hard. The school thing really makes it so horrible for people because it, then it becomes all about, like, do you, can you hit your... Oh, for sure. School you really fucks your, you up. It does fuck you up. And I was really lucky I didn't go to school for music. I almost did, but I was diverted by a, a teacher that actually told me not to study music. Really? They told you not to? Yeah, I went in freshman year and they were like, I took this test and I accidentally tested into a high music theory class, which was an accident because I didn't know anything about music theory. It was a complete mistake. And I was lost in the class, but I was like so flattered that I thought I was, oh my God, I must be a genius. So I went to the class and of course I was completely lost. And then I went to the head of the music school and I was like, look, I'm lost in this class. I don't know what's going on. And, and, and he said, well, well, what do you, why do you want to study music anyway? And I said, well, I, I write music. I've written music since I was 10. Like I, I've written, I've got thousands of songs. Like, you know, I just like, writing songs and he said well why do you need to study music I, well i suppose that's what you're supposed to do and he, he said well well i used to write music and then i went to college and i've never written a song since and now i'm the head of this department Ugh. so i would recommend that you not study music oh. yeah he said that to me wow. and that was like a game changer for me and Honestly, i had a, a sing i had a singing teacher that said the same thing i would agree with them Honestly, I, 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 I honestly think that there is something there in, I think that if you want to teach music, you should definitely go to school. But if, oh. you just, if you want to be music and like be an artist, then I think it can go either way. But I think opera is something so different, right? There are so many yeah. things that you learn technically that you need to go to school for. But not opera necessarily is, school, Opera is only, teacher. it's like form, period. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, for sure. My neighbor releases music. She, she has a single out now that's yeah. part of an album. Yeah, but no. So she sings. I want to hear it. I will send it to you for sure. We'll definitely send it to you um, before we. But like, think about like Nina Simone. Like she, she studied like hell, you know, and mm -hmm. she was high. It's like the thing about studying and then transcending the studying. That's the tough part. It's like almost like how to kick out the ladder from underneath you. And most people can't do it. I don't think I would have had the strength of character to do it. Yeah. I think I would have been bogged down by the oppressive weight of expectation 
Oh, it's crazy. Like you had teachers like if you you need to like when I was in undergrad, you had to uh, outside of all like your lessons and everything uh, for music theory, music historiography, voice science, all that stuff. The, the expectation was also that you studied for at least that you did like private your own voice uh, voice voice work on your own like eight hours every day. And yeah, like I had like a log I had to fill out with my voice teacher. I had to submit. It was like. It honestly it made it so crazy, and it it, it, it it really did make ruin a little bit of the passion I had for opera music by how insane my 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 practicing schedule had to be. But you know, a lot of people say that. Uh, and Ernie, when that. you say kick out the ladder, do you mean kick out the ladder of your instruction? Yes, at a certain point, you have to master those skills, but then you have to let them go and find your intuitive connection to music mm-hmm. again. And that is what so often gets severed in an education, especially by resentful teachers that don't really want you to be that free because they haven't been able to exercise that freedom themselves. Yeah. So they really are into hammering you into a coffin yeah. of uh, form. And, and, and only a few teachers are really going to be that open that they're going to let you grow especially if they see that you're an intuitive and most queens we're on some level we're intuitives you know mm-hmm. so it's like we've got an we've got a natural born intuitive relationship to music like i'm sure you do Monet. i can just imagine that like how did you get into opera like why did you choose opera um i chose opera because i i was in a, a high school choir and we ended we, we did a lot of spirituals and anthems and stuff like that and that's that's a close neighbor to classical music and then from there i decided to um, going to this young artist program uh, my junior and senior year of high school. And then that led me to operettas. And then from there, I was like, oh, my God, I really like this classical music thing. And I went to audition for um, for my undergrad at Westminster Choir College for um, music, for opera performance. And I got in. So I did that in music ed. And I dropped the performance like a year in because ed classes had pretty much the same thing, um, same voice. Because my primary instrument was voice. So. I went through that one, and after that, I sang professionally for two years. Have you done any choir work since then? No, but I miss it so much. I love I choral work. That's choral the thing, work. isn't it? That's I like the bottom to... line right there. Yeah, yeah. I, I listen to it a lot, but I've not done any. Oh my god, maybe, maybe, maybe Bunny should. Bunny, you should become like a a choral director, and you should start like the New York uh, Wig Stock Choir. I wear coral <laughs> lipstick. <laughs> it's very I, pretty, well, isn't it? Well, Anoni, why did why did you de- why did you decide to stop performing in 2016 and only release music and not perform? I was just really wiped out, Got and it. um, so it just and it was also very confusing. Like when you're out there on that level, and I mean, I was kind of cutting a few. You know, there hadn't really been a transgender singer in the public eye mm-hmm. since like Jane County, like you know, in the late seventies. I mean. Who else would you say, Bunny? George, but George never said he was trans. Like, mm. I was out trans in 2005 in the media, and it was sort of like the level of... Nominated for Academy Awards. Yeah, and, and that was like a thing, like, you know, but in, that was so great, but it was just, I don't think I was really prepared for the... Um, you know, they, they, they used my body as a kind of a experiment you know, they experimented on my body in the press to talk, how could they talk about a trans body person? Oh. And it, it, it got to be quite, you know, it was a lot of educating people. It was a lot of like educating interventions, trying to educate media to talk about, to use dignified language to talk about me. Like, mm. like it, think about like Laverne on Katie Couric saying, thank you for being teachable. You remember that moment? It was yes. like such a, it was a legendary moment. One of the great moments in trans history was Laverne saying to Katie Gork, thank you for being teachable. Yeah. You know, and it shocked me to the core because it's like for the 10 years previous to that, I've been sort of like thrashing around in, especially in the European newspapers, just being like alternately like really lauded and really degraded in equal measure. And it was just traumatic to be honest with you. It's just, it gets to a point where it's like 2000 people come and see a concert and they give you a standing ovation, you know, for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. And you go home the next day and you're in like on, you're on the cover of all the, the national newspaper in Germany or whatever. And they're calling you pathetic in toll, like just to, like just saying you're a pathetic effeminate, the fat effeminate or something, you know, uh-huh. and that, that language is still okay. So, so you've got like 2000 people that really love you 
And then you're consumed by two million people as breakfast fodder. Your degradation is consumed by like two million people. And it was just sort of like, I started to understand more and more that that was the, that was the transaction. The transaction wasn't just the concert, but it was also the culture mm-hmm. deciding how to digest me and, you know, kind of using my body for that. You know, like you go to like Sweden or something and all of the press would want to talk to you about being transgender or France or... And, and you realize that they're not talking to their trans people in their country about it. They're doing it on your body because you're an outsider. So they can, like, they'll, like, humor you on the front and then they'll go back to their papers in their language of origin and they'll say whatever they want. Mm. You know what I mean? And they'll just get into it. And, you know, I was up for the work. Every generation has to be up for the work. Like, Marsha was a homeless. Sylvia was homeless. They didn't get any credits in their lives. They died miserable and poor. Like, even Chloe was my best friend. She died in a fucking welfare hospital like 10 years ago and people are already writing PhDs about her now. It's like, wow. you know, it's like, it goes fast. Like, you know, every generation has their thing. And, and my was a very, I was a, I fought really hard to get out. Bunny, you saw that. Yes. I mean, you, you watched me f- how hard I fought because it was, it was stacked against me. But well, I got this out. Is, this was a time when, uh, in 2005, for example, there wasn't this, you know, rash of trans explosion. explosion. Rash. Pe- pe- it was like a, pe- it was a pe- no one. Was no people, one. yeah, people had not, there was no pose. There was no, you know, I mean, this, this was, you know, this was, this was before people were calling themselves non-binary. And it was also a time when you had changed your name. At what year did you change from Anthony and the Johnsons to Anoni? Well, that wasn't until 2016. I stuck with Anthony until 2016. You've used trans people in your work for many years. Um, I mean, all my casts have always been like mostly trans and punk women. Yes. Okay. So, um, and you consider yourself trans. So, so, so you're a keen observer of this huge trans explosion, which involves people like Caitlin, which involves a trans man on the recent, uh, you know, uh, uh, ep- season 13 of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, Gottmik, who I'm working with on this tour, right. to, to, you know, all kinds of other things from transparent, some handled well, some handled badly. What, what, have, what have they gotten right in your view and what have they got, what are they still getting wrong? Well, they got pose right, mm-hmm. you know, even though it's like plastic, like it's a plastic look. Mm-hmm. It's not how the peers looked, but they got the spirit right. And the fact that they're celebrating all those girls and those women is just, it's genius. It's this game changer, just like Laverne was a game changer. Mm-hmm. It's like sacred almost, you know, that they would be so out there in the front of the culture being seen and being, and, and changing people's hearts. Uh, you know? I, so I was sobbing. That's good. Did you sob? Yeah. Watching Pose? I mean, I love Pose. I also loved uh, Love and Nino. You know, did you guys see Love and Nino? The, I didn't see uh, all of it, but HBO. I love it. I've been Showtime yeah. is genius. It's did- so genius. And I talked to Joey Gabriel about it, and she was there for all that, and she said that's exactly how it was. Love mm-hmm. and Nino is even more raw than Pose in many ways. Yeah, I mean, the thing I liked, Sophia uh, Lamar is in. Sophia was incredible. Incredible. Um, I mean, she killed me. Yeah, I mean, I was very glad. I mean, I was not a Glee person, you know, so I didn't, that's all I knew Ryan Murphy from. But I was very glad that um, they did not whitewash the drugs, theft of designer clothes, mm-hmm. HIV, prostitution. Mm. I mean, yeah. you know, yes. I love Dominique. Yeah. She's Dominique Jackson. <laughs> she's too beautiful. Did you she see the stunning. interviews with her too? Like the, like the off-camera interviews with her, the longer ones, but she's talking about her childhood. I did no. not. It's just, they're just incredible. She's well, an incredible creature. In this past season, they do, um, they do a callback to like her, um, her younger years and with having a Jamaican mother, or I, I think Jamaican in the show, I'm not sure, but some type of Caribbean mother and it's 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 all really beautiful and 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 really well done and uh, and to echo bunny i'm happy that they didn't whitewash it and make it seem like it wasn't what it was it's it's pretty graphic and it feels real and i wasn't there but you know listen i is is it going to be perfect no are people very protective of that scene 
Sure, because it was the incredible scene behind Paris is Burning. Mm -hmm. um, but also... What did they get right? I think got, they got, got Mick right. You know, she's, she's my, uh, that queen is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but God I mean, Mick says she doesn't care if he, he doesn't care if she, you call, she says, I'm in drag. I'm not in drag. Call me. He, I'm in drag. It's confusing. Just call me anything. I just think it's amazing. Yeah. She's killing it. Yeah. And I, it's so glamorous. Well, can I tell you how fun she is on tour? She's like bolt. And I go walking over to the stage. She's bolting out of her dressing room to yell expletives at me. And trust me, she is one of us. Uh, she, uh, he is one of us. The the uh, uh, Austin Young, the photographer, yeah, is I believe who he started doing makeup with. There's so many queens on on Drag Race. That I just think are, are brilliant. Like I really think like I could spot. And then there's, there's usually Monet. one. There's usually one per season. That I think oh that one would have been in Black Lips. Like when I saw Pearl, I thought, "Oh, that one would have been in Black Lips," yeah. or Tammy. Tammy, what was her name? Tammy, Tammy Brown. Tammy Brown. I was like, "Oh, that one would have been in Black Lips, no doubt." <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it was that kind of queen. It was just like off, or or um, that one who won recently with the elastic. What's her name? She's incredible. Plastic Tierra. What, what was her name? Plastic Tierra. Evie, oddly, Evie, I yeah. loved Evie so much, and she was like so Black Lips to me. Yeah. Well, I well if if there's any consolation, I have black lips both up top and down below, so maybe oh, yes. I could have been in black lips. That's you could definitely have been in black on lips on 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 a multifaceted level. Oh, but honey, you you somebody that put together small orchestras to perform at PS one twenty two and did all that stuff and you know put yourself out there as trans had you know, you know award-winning albums nominated for this nominated for that you 2016 you may have stopped but honey you ain't gonna stop for good no I'm, I'm i keep making stuff and it's not like i'm in like a i really the backing off of the performance wasn't because i i wasn't really it wasn't like a pity party it was more just that i needed to reset myself because i didn't know how to process the information mm -hmm. like I needed to reorganize the way I was processing people's other people's opinions of me, and I couldn't do it while I was still in in the firing line. So I needed to step back, and I, and I think I've, I have like learned a lot because you know our generation we, you know, we all carry a fair bit of PTSD from our childhoods and the crap that we went through, and that's been another thing interesting about watching the Drag Race is the extent to which that's still happening. I can't believe how many of those kids is like I was put in a, like a I was put into like a Christian conversion, conversion therapy yeah. and all this stuff that I thought I'm really shocked me to hear the people enduring that level of violence still around there, you know, just trying to get out of grade school. Yeah. You know, just to get to 18. Like, I mean, when I was a kid, it was like, you just have to survive until you're old enough to leave. That was like the, that was what you basically thought. I mean, at least for myself, it was like, you've got to stay alive yeah. for long enough to leave. Yeah. And once, but it's like when you get to 18 and you've suddenly stayed alive, it's like, it's only recently I've been like unpacking it, like, oh my God, like all those feelings I had in my chest when I was 18, like that sort of crazy feelings I had. It's like, those weren't from being 18, those were from being 12. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like PTSD. It's like, I think yeah. there's a lot of PTSD in trans and queer community generally, and we don't talk about it much. As much that's, as we should, because most people have endured a tremendous amount of abuse, either from their peers or from their own families. You and know? they just had to like kind of like move on with your life and just yeah, and fuck the, the church. I mean, that's not oh even the thing. church, oh god. And then you just expect to, and we just all kind of move on. We never deal with that no trauma. One deal, from no childhood. one talks about it. No one talks about it. We just try yeah. to deal with it individually, but we don't deal with it collectively. You know, and that we might have benefited from a bit of consciousness raising, like sixties style. Yeah, I like, mean, you know, even though I think of myself as a strong person, you know, I wasn't always. And, you know, e even to, like, just glance back at that, I mean, I try to tell myself, oh, well, you know, you got over, you were in student council, or they didn't beat you up, you know, or whatever. But there was always a fear of that. And there was always, like, how do I play my cards right? Which, mm -hmm. you know, it... it, 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 it in, in order to minimize the bullying and minimize the the fear. 
Yeah. Um, de- definitely there were years where I feared for my life on a daily basis. Oh, for sure. You know, through my, through my childhood. It's like, that's not actually, you know, so that conducive also comes to into learning. play. It's not conducive to learning. <laughs> well, it just, just gives you, makes you grow in a different direction. Like you chop a branch off a tree and it just grows in a different direction. Like a lot of that stuff also made us who we are, made us so resilient and made us such gorgeous survivors and such resourceful survivors, you know, and, and so unusual. And also being thrown out of society, family, community in ver- on various levels. It's like the greatest boon you could get received from this culture at this point in history. Because at least it gives you like a bird's eye view of what's really happening. You're not stuck in those churches and those families and in those horrible communities, like <laughs> still trying to make it work, yeah. you know, but, but I came from probably the last generation of kids that really fled to New York to be free and safe. You know, like literally we came to New York to be safe and mm-hmm. free and find our friends. Because there was no way we were ever going to be free in our towns of origin <laughs> or safe. Yeah. No. Like I was always safer. Like I would just pick up a piece of like metal off the street, like walking from the West Village to East Village when I was 21. I'd like grab like a piece of old metal, piece of old washing machine. I just had my combat boots, my mini skirt. I just walked from east to west. I was never scared Word. on the streets of New York City. Did you ever have to use the metal? The only people I was ever scared of on the streets of New York City were cops. And Lady Bunny. No, never Bunny, just cops. Okay. <laughs> the cops, they were the only ones that assaulted me on the streets. But never people. Girl, the cops, let me get me sad about police. No, it's a nightmare. It's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anoni, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for swinging on by Ebony, Ebony, and, Ebony and I, I can't even get the name of my of our podcast right. Ebony and I, your irony. Do you know who's the Ebony and who's the irony? Can you guess, Anoni? I think that you're both both. <laughs> <laughs> Bunny's Ebony workout. <laughs> you're both both. Bunny has a little... <laughs> a little what? Little evil heart uh-huh. that you could call <laughs> necrotic heart that you could probably black. You have your. Let us know. What, is it is, is there anything that we should be looking forward to? Are you? Are we? Um, what's what's coming down the pop, What's coming down the pipeline? Oil. <laughs> yeah, oil. Work oil. <laughs> I love oil. You know, I don't. I don't. I'm, I'm working on bits and pieces. You know, but it is a whole new world. Like we have to figure out how we're going to do this. You know, everyone's saying like, you know, next ten years is going to define the next three hundred years. Oh God! In terms of like how much fossil fuel we use, so it's like all of us are going to be challenged with that. Like, are we going to just get back on the plane? You know, really? Yeah. Everyone's like, well, I have to do it for my living. You know, at what cost? At the cost of every queen ever to be born from here forth? Like, you know, there's millions of queens wanting to live in the future, and we're promising them no future if we, like, keep burning, like, just taking and burning. But I sit in a position of privilege when I say that because I I did my taking and burning, you know, but then I I got to a point where I I can't see myself through to do it anymore as well. Like, I feel like I have to, like, only take one flight a year or something, you know? Mm. But you know, like there's, you know, in our industry, it's like you could take a hundred flights a year. Oh yeah, it's, yeah, it's 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 part of the job. It kind of it's it is kind of wild. You know, and then everyone that comes to see you, they take the train or the, their car. Yeah. It's like we're we're like petrochemical luxury goods. Is what we basically are. Oh my god. You oh, know, honey, just being on tour, I'm not complaining about my meals being uh, delivered. Um, but yeah, the, the plastic that stacks up. No, it's just everything. in my hotel room alone. I mean, it's like they everything is in its own separate plastic yeah. thing. Those little things with sauces. It's just it's so excessive. Our yeah. careers are petrochemical luxury industries. Oh my god, <laughs> that's so real. Oh my god, the Matrix is un is unmatrixing. That's so real. Well, it's something we have to face. It's something that's that like, we're not. You know, it's something that we're not facing, and if if either party in the U.S. were actually dealing with it, um, 
then this would then it would have been slowed down. We're not, and our politics are politics of greed and subsidies for oil companies. And you know, the people that you know, I, I think a lot of people my age are kind of like, well, fuck this, I'm going to be gone. You know, um, but a lot. I'm glad to see younger people, which is people, completely a demented point of view. Because oh, where the horrible. fuck do you think you're going? Oh, and where do you think you're 60s. going? You're just going to be reborn as a factory farm chicken. You know, the, <laughs> the only thing left is going to be factory farm chickens, and everyone's just going to be screaming in those. You know, it's like I saw the statistics: like thirty percent of mammals by body weight are humans le- left on Earth. Sixty. 66- Six percent, sixty-six percent of mammals by body mass on this planet are factory farmed animals. Four percent of remaining of mammals left on Earth are wild animals. So, like, you think about that, like between humans and the animals we've enslaved, it's like nine, it's like eight, ninety-six percent of the mammal by body mass on this Earth. Like, everyone like thinks they're just going to fuck off to heaven, you know, to their little Christian heaven. They're going to get out of Dodge. As soon as they die, oh, they've just got to do like 40 more years and then they're not going to be beholden to whatever shit pile we leave here. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of other people who would say, you're not going very far. Like, you know, I did a lot of work with indigenous people in Australia and I said to them, where do we think we're going to go when we die? And my friend Nola, she just said, well, we're going back to country. Where do you think we're going? It's like, there's no leaving. Like, you know, there's a point of view that could say, and a transport. What do you mean going back say, to country? What do you mean going back to country? means you're going to be a part of this world you're mm-hmm. still going to be a part of this world right. we're not leaving like we came from somewhere and we're going so we've always been a part of this world this is a long story we're like two pairs of eyes looking out but we've been a thousand pairs of eyes before and we're going to be a thousand more you know whether it's like locally us or us generally in a more kind of energy entropic way you know it's you know, there's, I don't think there's an easy out. Everyone thinks there's this easy out. And I just think that's another aspect of colonialism, like Christian colonialism, convincing people that they only have to do one round here. But any indigenous person would tell you, you're not going anywhere. You're hmm. just going to have to sit with the new landscape. So you're going to be born a factory fucking farm chicken. You know, and just remember that next time you eat one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, but for the grace of God, go we. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, there's... I believe that literally. I do believe that literally. That we that 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 of uh, of reincarnation and we all will be back as something else. Well, I I do you know like I read an article in the New York Times recently. It was talking about artificial intelligence, and this science fiction writer was saying, you know, the reason we shouldn't engage anymore in the development of artificial intelligence is because it's not because artificial intelligence is going to become so threatening to us as a species that they will overwhelm us. It's because Many generations before artificial intelligence becomes, has enough agency to do that, they will have already experienced generations and generations of torture and suffering at our hands. If the way we treat animals is any indication of the way we're going to treat artificial intelligence, like new sentience that we create, we're going to make their lives hell on earth. They'll be the new slaves, but worse, because they won't even be considered real or legitimate feeling creatures. Yeah, I've seen a lot of articles about this, about how, like, AI, like, how to treat robots, and you have to kind of treat them, not like humans, but, like, you, like, they'll have, like, labor laws, and they'll be, like, certain, it's, like, already, like, a thing. It's, like, already so crazy. But, look, we don't have labor laws and and sensitivity rights for animals, and look where we're at. Like, it's just, like, a disaster. You know, we've, we're so busy looking for animals in hyperspace and in, like, space forms, but we're just annihilating all the biodiversity on this planet. And those are the real, the real troves of knowledge that we've never learned. We don't know how to speak any of their languages. We don't know how to communicate with all those creatures. And that's our family. That's our real family. My goal is that in reincarnation, Bunny is not born as a factory farm chicken. I would not want that for her. I want, oh, her, to, I would. I, I want her to be comfortable as a factory farm pig. Well... As oh. long as you eat me. No, I... I I'll eat uh, every, every inch of you, baby. Of course, Anoni, you've been a vegetarian for how many years? Since I was 12. Wow. I mean, and when you're talking about climate change, I'm just looking at a headline here. The G7 Summit. Leaders pledge climate action, but disappoint activists. And... Uh, 
you know, of Catherine Pettengill, director at Climate Action Network, told Reuters news agency, quote, we had hoped that the leaders of the world's richest nations would come away from this week having put their money where their mouth is. And everyone is just kicking climate change down the road. I mean, we're not... <laughs> We're not dealing with it, and it, 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 it is the number one issue. I, I, I don't support Bernie Sanders because I don't live in Vermont. I support what he says, but I did support him in 2016, and he was literally mocked on our news when he and Hillary were asked, what is the biggest uh, crisis facing us? And she talked about some foreign policy threat, and he talked, he said climate change, you know, without a doubt, and he was like, mocked in mainstream papers. So we have to understand, you know, like how, um, I mean, we are literally ignoring the world's biggest problem. Well, and there's a reason why they're dragging women's reproductive rights and trans kids' rights. And this is going to be what's going to preoccupy the American conversation for the next three years. It's because it's much, much easier to create polarizing, idiotic, convincing conversations for people with bias, you know, to, you know, stop trans children from stealing our other children's medals or, you know, stop women from aborting their baby. You know what I mean? It's like, this is always going to be a knee-jerk fake moral issue that's going to be a perfect smokescreen for the real issues. And the real issues is wealthy, final wealth extraction and final, final biodiversity and final wealth extraction. Like, We've only got one more round of it. We really have like a few years, like five more years, six years. Like we have to go down to, you know, it's, it's, if it's not going to happen now, it really is like, everyone knows it too. Like David Attenborough did this TV show. Did you see the one? No. That he just did on Netflix. He, um, what is it called? I can't remember, but it's like, he's, he's talking to climate. Um, he's sorry. He's talking to, um, climate scientists, you know, he goes to, um, Australia and talks to some of them after the big fires in, in Australia from 2020 and, and, and talks about the fact that the Great Barrier Reef is half dead in the last five years. I mean, like, can you imagine if Yosemite is half dead in the last five years? We would, would we be talking about it? I mean, half dead. Yeah. Like, but, or the entire Great Barrier Reef is half dead. So it's like, but what, what happened that's different on this program is that they're showing all these climate scientists crying. Like, they interview these climate scientists, and scientists are crying. And that's completely taboo. Like, in the 25 years I've been talking about climate in various capacities, like, one of the big things is that the scientific community wants to be seen as impartial. Mm -hmm. But now they've, like, and I actually performed at the TED conference in 2012 in Long Island, and they are, in, Long, in Long Beach, and they asked me, you know, I, they wanted me to sing Another World, a song I wrote about the climate. And, you know, I said at the end, like, all of you people are talking about progress, but I'm not hearing anyone talking about the possibility of retreat. Why aren't we talking about retreat? And, 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 um, and I was taken off the website like half an hour later and erased from the history of TED conferences. But then this scientist came up to and, me afterwards. And you, he was mean, like 18, re you mean retreat from what we're currently doing that's causing Retreat from progress, retreat from technology, retreat from population, retreat from everything. Mm -hmm. Like take, you know, law of seven generations, like Iroquois, like traditional ideas, deep, deep ideas that have been around for thousands of years. Like stop, pause, yeah. take an inventory, like stop. Yeah. You know, we're not stopping. Everyone just thinks we have to keep ramping. And it's like, and this scientist came up to me after that and he said to me, I saw you singing your song. It was so touching, but you know, why are you crying over spilled milk? Like it's, a, it's just a fact that 50% of the world's species will be distinct by the end of the century. And you just need to move on. He said that to me in 2012. This was this old scientist. And it was just like, and I said to him, you know, the reason I sang that song is because I need, it's my job as like an ecstatic faggot trans person to hold spiritual and psychic space for the ramifications of what you just said, you know? And, you know, because I'm a ceremonial artist. Like I do ceremony. I do, you know, whether it's a funeral or whatever the fuck it is that we're doing now on this planet. <laughs> Oh, girl, we. <laughs> Anoni is. <laughs> I just. 
I'm talking to Noni was very, this was a very, uh, I feel like I learned so much, but I also, it was a very interesting interview. I was very happy to, to, to chat with Noni. That was fun. Anoni is a rare and gifted <laughs> and super intelligent person. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You can check out more of Anoni's work at Anoni, A-N-O-H-N-I dot com. And on the splash page is his video with Naomi Campbell Her. called Drone Bomb Me. Because work. in addition to climate and trans issues, uh, Anoni is dead set against war. War is not the answer. Um, Neither is your singing voice. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, um, thank y'all for joining us here once again for Ebony and Irony. Um, please make sure you're streaming my latest single, Love Like This, um, wherever it, it is available, wherever music is. And you should do it and listen to it. All right, buddy. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. Starbanks Audio, a podcast. <clears throat> a podcast network.